often we, we might say, well, utilities, they're large, they, you know, they, they can move slowly. We prove that is wrong. We prove we can move very quickly and our employees have an immense, uh, I'd say almost infinite capacity for learning and for change. We demonstrated it then. The challenge now is how do we demonstrate it on the next you know, piece where we want to move the ball. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Welcome to this new edition of EEI's Global Circuit podcast. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest, Mr. Pedro Bizarro. He is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Edison International. Pedro, welcome to EEI International Programs. Hey, thanks a lot, Lawrence. Great being here. Well. We want to start by first helping the audience to understand who is Edison International, maybe a short story about the company and where you guys are, how you got to where you are today. Uh, Sounds great. So Edison International is the holding company for Southern California Edison, which serves uh, just under 40% of California. Uh, Company's been around for 135 years. We have around 13,000 employees. And you know, SCE covers a 50,000 square mile territory across central, coastal, and Southern California. You know, both the company and the state have been real leaders in terms of renewable energy, energy efficiency, and now you know, how we use the electric grid to decarbonize the economy. We also have uh, under the Edison International umbrella, Edison Energy, and that's a competitive business that's uh, essentially a global energy advisory company working with large commercial and industrial clients. This includes 15 of the Fortune 50 right now. Uh, we have a number of clients that have uh, taken us beyond uh, serving them in the US and now with increasing presence in Europe, Canada, Mexico. I think we just uh, began a little work in Asia recently. And so you know, the focus there is helping these clients uh, meet their sustainability goals, uh, their reliability goals, their economic goals through deploying renewables, energy efficiency, building controls, uh, commodity procurement, and integrating it all with a a data-driven platform that really helps them think about energy risk broadly. So that's a company. We also uh, make uh, investments in uh, technology startups and, uh, you know, our space and adjacent spaces. So a lot going on here uh, for Edison International. Well, that's good to know. In fact, when we're preparing for this uh, podcast, I was doing some research and people I talked to were keen to learn more about one thing you're doing, which I think uh, you are passionate about, which is your pathway 2045. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that initiative, how it was started and where you guys stand today? Sure. Well, the how it was started is kind of interesting. I became CEO in October of 2016. And this is one of the first uh, pieces of work that I asked our team to do, including some outside help as well. Uh, and my concern at the time was that California was clearly a leader globally in terms of you know, advancing the clean energy transition, but uh, you know, it was getting there through a number of point solutions, you know, renewable law here, biomass mandate there, energy efficiency programs over here. Uh, the beginnings of uh, electric vehicle uh, focus. But the state had more recently adopted carbon reduction as an umbrella, yet there really wasn't any analysis that was being done at the macroeconomic level of how all those pieces fit together. 
and you know how the economy as a whole would get to net zero carbon by 2045. And initially, it was about getting the economy to a 40% reduction uh, from 1990 levels by 2030, which had I think at that time had already been passed into law. And so we weren't seeing this anywhere uh, in government or private industry. Nobody really doing a macroeconomic view. So that's what we set out to do. And the first white paper that we published at the end of 2017 focused on that 2030 mark. We then continued the work and published a paper at the end of uh, 2019 that uh, was the Pathway 2045 paper that extended us out to the net zero uh, target that the state had now adopted for 2045. And what that says, Lawrence, is that the transition is absolutely achievable, feasible, uh, it requires a significant push on the power sector side to electrify our supply uh, in order to then electrify a lot of the economy. And to just give you some numbers to put it in context, uh, we see California going to 100% of delivered retail electrons being clean, you know, coming from carbon-free sources by 2045. Uh, we see that requiring a massive investment in renewables with an addition of 80 gigawatts of bulk power renewables, along with 30 gigawatts of distributed renewables, things like you know behind the meter, rooftop solar, a lot of storage to integrate the volatility variability of those renewables. So we see the need for 30 gigawatts of bulk power storage, along with 10 gigawatts of behind the meter uh, uh, distributed storage, uh, continued push on energy efficiency, and then using all that clean electricity to electrify a lot of the economy, not all, but a lot of it. And so we see uh, the need for 26 million electric vehicles on the road in 2045. And that means three quarters of light duty vehicles, two thirds of medium duty, one third of heavy duty will be electric by then. Uh, buildings, another big part of the equation. So 70% of space and water heating in buildings need to be electrified. All of this will create a significant uh, push on load and on demand. And so we see uh, electric uh, use across the board, across the state, increasing by 60% and peak load increasing by 40% in that time period, which means a significant need to then invest in the grid. And to give you a you know, final couple numbers on this, um, just the power sector side alone, we see the need to invest around a quarter trillion dollars, so $250 billion uh, across renewables, storage, and grid investments. And that's, uh, of course, in addition to the investments end-use consumers will need to make on their electric vehicle or their water heater or what have you. But the good news in all of this is that because of the greater efficiency of electric technologies, the fact that from a physics perspective, you need to put less energy in to get more work out. You know, we see this being affordable. And so the average consumer will actually be spending a third less across all their energy needs in 2045 than they do today. Just, you know, they may be spending more on electricity, but because of that efficiency, they'll be spending a third less across the energy spectrum. And that's that's a promise of this. It's not just about reducing carbon. It's going to be affordable. It's going to help create jobs. And you can do this in a way that... Uh, you know, helps our diverse communities as well, uh, you know, across the entire spectrum. Well, that, that's great to hear. And you mentioned, you mentioned net zero and energy transition in your response, uh, which then brings me to the whole idea of public policy. Uh, obviously, we just had the G7 conference. We're getting ready for COP26 in, uh, in November. Um, so 
you know, what what role do you see public policy playing in achieving some of these things? Not just for for California, but just more broadly on a global scale. What do you see the role of public policy makers and, and what, not advice, but what will you tell them that they should be focused on to accelerate this transition? Take payer seriously. <laughs> Step one, take payer seriously. Uh, you know, really pleased to see the United States be back uh, in the Paris Agreement. That was an important step that President Biden took. Uh, you know, personally, I like to see every country sign on and then deliver on it and, you know, develop the pathways uh, and start making the investments now that are needed to make sure that we as a globe can land at, you know, that net zero by 2050, which Paris calls for. And, you know, obviously in California, our state has uh, opted for 2045, so five years uh, before that. Now, that means that you need really aggressive but feasible economy-wide actions you know, across the globe. It's been, a, look, as somebody who's trained as a scientist, uh, it's been heartening to see the scientific community pull together like it has over the last 15 months to battle COVID. And we have seen just an incredible pace, Lawrence, in terms of uh, advances in research development and deployment for therapeutics, for vaccines on a global scale. Uh, you know, the, the global scientific community and the government and policymaker communities took this seriously and largely solved the problem. You know, we're still solving in terms of deployment of vaccines, but from a science perspective, that was remarkable. We need that sense of urgency and action for the climate challenge, uh, because that's the other big existential challenge that we're facing right now. You know, as that filters down from the big picture agreement on Paris to country by country policies, you know, nationally directed commitments like the one that President Biden recently issued for the U.S. We're calling for a 50 to 52 percent reductions by 2030 economy wide, which we support. Getting into the next level down of that or the next layers of the onion will require a regulatory framework that has uh, both push and marketplace pull. You know, you need to make sure you're using the market to get to the most economic approaches here. Uh, and you need to do it in a way where you make sure that, you know, you're thinking about the costs and the benefits being distributed fairly across all segments of the economy and across all income levels, across all racial and ethnic groups. This really needs to be something that is done with, with everybody uh, uh, at play. One more important piece here is that, you know, for those of us in the power sector, you know, we've seen, particularly in the U.S., but I think this is true in other countries as well, it's been, I'll use the word carefully, but it's been relatively easy to target the power sector as the first contributor. Um, and so you see a lot of regulatory in intensity on reducing power sector emissions. That's appropriate. That's necessary. That's not sufficient. And importantly, uh, it's critical that global uh, governments focus on all sectors of the economy, not just the power sector. You know, important soundbite here is that when we did our analysis, uh, we see California getting to net zero by 2045 by using all the tools in the toolbox. We don't think that means taking out every single last CO2 molecule from the power sector. In fact, we believe that the more economic approach We'll still have about 6% of the electrons produced at the wholesale level uh, made from natural gas, 40% of which will be renewable natural gas. Mm -hmm. So that means you still have some residual emissions in our sector. Mm -hmm. The reason is that the cost to remove those last emissions, the, the, the cost to remove the last CO2 molecule from the power sector is so large that deploying that capital instead into other sectors will generate much larger 
greenhouse gas emission. And so if you think about doing this most affordably across the economy, you need to think about all sectors contributing their appropriate share based on the technologies available. So that's another important part of the equation as I think about what's needed from global governments. I like that because it reminds me of uh, of the you said scientists <laughs> being a semi scientist myself. I, I am I hear what you just right. said. I think of marginal cost, right? And all, we've always talked about the marginal cost for keeping the lights on. There is the marginal cost for decarbonizing, and that marginal cost is actually very very high relative to the conversations we've had for other sectors. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in fact, you know uh, what we did in our analysis was we constructed the supply curve for carbon abatement em emissions across the economy or sorry, carbon abatement options across the economy. So think of it as a supply curve, right? And you're right, as you get to the right of it, it gets steeper and steeper. And you know that supply curve had power sector options, it had transportation options, it had building water heating and building space heating options, industrial options, et cetera. Um, and so the idea that we should somehow exhaust the power sector curve first, instead of superimposing all the sector supply curves together into a single aggregate supply curve and then climbing up that curve, that's a more economic choice, right? So, you know, I think your PhD is in economics, minus in, uh, in chemistry, physical chemistry, both sides are important, right? Uh, because you need to make sure you got the technologies and you have the economics lined up. Well, mine is in power systems and control, so... I'm sorry, <laughs> my apologies. My apologies, It's okay, I, I want to be an economist, but never mind. <laughs> so, no, well, so, that blows up my analogy because we're both on the technical side, but yours exactly. is even more relevant than to the technologies. Yeah, so I want to talk about one aspect of this, of this uh, transition. You mentioned when you said just or uh, fair. Let's talk about the consumers, right? And, and this is an area that I think is very important. How do we get the consumers with us? And can you just say a few words about what you all are doing to get customers more engaged in this transition? Well, you know, first, this has a lot of angles that I could pursue here. So I'll try not to take up the rest of the hour you know, on this. But um, I think first it starts with making sure we're listening to the consumers. And frankly, in some ways, it starts with making sure that we reflect the consumers, right? So you know, let me focus on Southern California Edison. We serve an incredibly diverse area uh, of our state and of our country and frankly of our planet, right? Just about every nationality and every ethnicity you can think of is represented in our population. And oh, by the way, for those who are listening maybe from afar and think of Southern California as a very affluent area, um, it's true we have some very affluent regions, uh, but we have some very dis economically disadvantaged regions too, right? So a full third so Southern California Edison's residential customers qualify for low income assistance. And SCE serves a bit under 40% of the state, uh, but has 46% of the state's disadvantaged communities. So we need to be able to reflect that diversity. Uh, we need to reflect it from our board, on through our executive team, through our workforce. And so I'm proud that our board is a very diverse board in terms of gender and racial and ethnic backgrounds. You know, seven out of the 11 of us are diverse in one way or another. Um, our, uh, our workforce is around 70% diverse. And so it's important because it makes sure, you know, ensures that we uh, have a framing of what our customers might be thinking. That's necessary, it's not sufficient. We also need to be actually be talking with the customers and, you know, multiple ways we do that, directly with end use customers, but importantly using community groups, uh, you know, local, uh, local non-governmental organizations. Um, uh, groups that are actually based in the community, broader environmental groups, you know, a whole host of 
uh, organizations that can help give us that perspective. And so when you think about a program like our Charge Ready program, that is, uh, you know, we got approval for uh, over $400 million in investment uh, to the to help deploy around 38,000 electric vehicle chargers in SCE's territory over the next four years or so. That program, uh, I think over half of that program is being targeted as advantage communities. And that was driven in part by engaging some of those groups like our consumer advisory panel, right? To give us ideas on how we can make it relevant to their communities. Uh, so that's really important. Another piece to this, Lawrence, is just educating, right? And it's educating the end use customers, educating the groups that represent them, uh, engaging with our policymakers, with our public utilities commissions, with other governmental entities, um, to make sure that you know we're, we we have two way learning going on. But particularly when we see electric technologies being able to play a big role, that we're making sure that's apparent. So when folks might think of the energy transition and you know they might focus on the well the fact that today maybe your lower end electric vehicle might cost ten thousand dollars more than its gas fired counterpart right it's engaging in the education to make sure that those groups can understand that well yes that may be the case today but if you look at a total cost of ownership basis your lower price electric vehicles are already on parity um, you know, with operating uh, a, a gasoline vehicle or petrol vehicle. Uh, that's an important communication challenge. At a broader level, you know, the, 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 the fact that I shared with you earlier from our analysis that we see this energy transition leading to the average customer spending a third less under household energy belt. Those are important sound bites that are, that are critical to help communicate the promise of this transition and then be able to get support for it as well. So I think the transition is gonna occur at a different pace. Uh, you mentioned investment. And so I wanna talk about another angle that is important for the transition. Uh, as we face the, the issues of climate change, one thing that is very, very pertinent is the issue of resilience and modernizing the grid. So can you talk a little bit about how do we scale up investments uh, for resilience and how do we, what kind of responses have you gotten from the investment community in terms of the kind of things we have to invest in? So what does, what do investors think and how do we scale up investments for, for resilience across the grid? So look, I think all of us across the planet are going to be facing these choices, right? But it just so happens that here in California, we have been slapped in the face <laughs> very hard um, with the reality of climate change, particularly around the wildfire risk. And so, uh, you know, we've had uh, processes in the state going on for quite some time, looking at wildfire risk, looking at broader climate change issues and how we think not only about mitigation through the clean energy transition, but adaptation, right, of making our systems more resilient. We will face sea level rise. We will need to make joint choices with local communities around, are those communities, hardening in place or picking up their homes and the wires that serve them and moving inland a mile or you know what have you, right? But we've had front and center the wildfire risk and in a way that really um, literally exploded on us beginning four years ago. You know, we wildfires have been a part of the California landscape forever. But we saw these events beginning in 2017 that were much larger than anything anybody had imagined prior to that. And so that's meant that we needed to turn on a dime, uh, make some very rapid changes in our planning processes, our engineering criteria, 
uh, in order to harden the system. So as, as you look at where we've been over the last three years, I think we've already investing, invested something like uh, two or $3 billion um, in resilience and investment focus on wildfire mitigation. And our plans over the next three years are to invest another $3 billion. So this is massive investment and to scale it for, for the listeners, you know, that's very significant relative to the scale of our utility. Our regulated rate base is call it around $30 billion. We are investing around $5 billion in capital a year. Um, and uh, as I say, you know, that 16 billion or so over the next uh, uh, three years, about 3 billion of that is going to be focused on wildfire investment. So that's one example, but again, that, that's not the only one. I think as we move forward, we will need to then continue to target investments in uh, not just the hardening of the system, but core resiliency in the sense of making sure that the lights, the power can stay on. Whether or not there's wildfire risk that today might require us to shut the power off uh, temporarily in a high fire risk area, whether or not there's a windstorm, whether or not we're seeing uh, volatile weather manifested in terms of either drought part of the year or massive rainstorms or snowstorms at other parts of the year, right? Regardless of the challenge, we're going to need to continue to make the investments to reimagine how we think of the system in order to be able to withstand climate change. One final quick thought on this, Lawrence, is that uh, SCE published a white paper in December of 2020 called Reimagining the Grid. And it, it took that pathway 2045 analysis, the next step, and asked, what do we need to do on the grid side to then uh, prepare the grid for this transformation? And so it gets into these kind of comments around resiliency um, and uh, you know being able to rethink our planning processes and build resiliency in across all levels of the grid, from the bulk power system to our wires, down to thinking about how we can help make the end use customer's home or business more resilient itself. So I think we have transitioned as an industry from reliability being a priority to resilience becoming a new priority. And, okay. and your organization has been front and center when it comes to a lot of innovation so let's talk a little bit about innovation in our industry. Uh, first of all, quick yes or no question. Do you agree with the premise by those who say that the power industry is not innovative? Yes or no? Do you agree with that? Oh, no. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> that was a trick question. Very innovative. <laughs> so, so as we're innovative, um, what kinds of innovation do you see uh, needed for reimagining this grid that you see? What are some of the areas where you see innovation playing an important role? And what are some of those innovations? Uh, it's going to require a lot of tools in the toolbox, really across the power sectors. So, so doing a, a quick lightning round version, then we can dive deeper into some of these if you like. But from the generation side to better technologies for more efficient renewables, through to the storage side, uh, particularly in new chemistries beyond lithium ion, um, uh, to better store power and being able to manage the variability of renewables, through to you know continued work on energy efficiency, on into uh, advances uh, on the grid side to better manage a more complex grid uh, that will have many more nodes on it, right? Because we're moving from a one-way bulk power transmission down to the end-use customer to we already have a two-way grid here in Southern California with thousands of nodes at the, at the customer premise. And I think there will be tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of nodes as we move into the future to cybersecurity innovation, to be able to maintain the security of that grid, even as the attack surface you know, multiplies uh, by, by orders of magnitude as we add more and more nodes you know, to that grid. 
and the distributed energy re, uh, uh, resource management systems to coordinate that grid, um, you know, across our consumers and across, you know, these devices that at uh, one point might be consuming energy and another point might be providing energy to the grid. Um, and then all the way through to innovation on the end use customer side, better devices, better appliances that can use all of that clean electricity. It's really exciting. And I see the innovation taking place across a number of venues. Uh, here in the United States, certainly the work that the Department of Energy is doing uh, in the energy sector to push across a number of those technology areas that I mentioned with significant government funding, the role of private industry, private equity, companies as ourselves, groups like the Electric Power Research Institute, which is such a key innovator on a global basis. And you know, I was uh, honored to uh, just complete a, a year as chair of that. Um, and you know, that has an international membership as, as does EEI that's collaborating on a number of these technologies. Uh, for our company, it, this innovation means uh, uh, pushing these research areas within our electric utility. And so, you know, areas like the smart grid or, you know, how we think about uh, uh, connecting vehicles and, uh, you know, at some point going from unidirectional smart grid to uh, vehicle to grid, bi-directional sort of technologies. And our grid technology team is very engaged in examples like uh, a DOE project that's working with a bus company to make V2G capable electric school buses. That's a small example, but it gives you a sense of the diversity of projects, everything from that to grid technologies that we're piloting at our uh, uh, through our grid technology innovation group. Uh, a service center of the future that uh, it's going to demonstrate um, a fleet service center with large EV charging demands and the supporting pieces like energy storage and photovoltaic panels and smart charging systems and uh, electrified space and water heating for that service center. So all sorts of fun, innovative things that the utility is doing. We see it through Edison Energy, right? Because Edison Energy is helping their clients develop uh, or deploy a number of these innovative technologies. And then finally, we have a, uh, a small uh, group that does, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, but our growth and innovation group that's investing in companies like uh, uh, an electric bus maker that uh, recently went public, uh, fleet management technologies, uh, you know, end use management uh, technology companies. So there's just so much space and so much need, but fortunately so much activity going on in our sector. So. Yeah, back to your initial question. Absolutely, very innovative sector and a lot of uh, a lot of room to go. A lot of room to grow, uh, and you've really laid out a, a very diverse field of things you all are doing. But that brings me to your workforce. You have a very robust workforce, you said. And how do you keep the workforce current with the changes happening in the industry? Because the, I mean, now you have data data specialists who are coming in as power system engineers and you have power system engineers who are now supposed to become data specialists. So how do you transition the workforce within your company to meet this new demand? Well, it hits across all the uh, elements of the um, employee cycle, you know, from re attracting, recruiting, uh, developing and retaining, uh, frankly, a fantastic set of, you know, 13,000 employees. But you know, to your point, uh, there's a constant education effort around making sure we're helping our employees keep up with this change. Yet at the same time, we recognize that a number of our employees are driving that change, right? And so they are creating the new content. So that's where it's so valuable to be able to work with, you know, organizations like EEI, right? To come together with other members and, you know, uh, teams at those other member companies 
uh, and share thoughts, share innov you know, innovative ideas. Same thing with the Electric Power Research Institute. These are important organizations where we can compare notes on a global scale and help move the ball for the industry. Uh, you know, we've had a number of employees who've been involved in electric vehicle charging, right? Uh, we have developed uh, derived great benefit from uh, my, uh, frankly, it's been a privilege to be able to co-chair EEI's uh, Transportation Electrification CEO Task Force. I'm co-chairing that right now with uh, Callan Butler at Exelon and John Pettigrew at National Grid. And the ability to bring things to the table where our team has frankly been a world leader and see things at that table from others who are also providing world leadership in other areas Comparing notes and bringing that back home and sharing that with the rest of our crew is just critical to, you know, to being able to move the ball and, and grow our employees. I'll give you one other very different example, though, where I think we have all grown over the last 15 months. And it's uh, our ability to use different technologies for working uh, at home, for teleworking. And the reality is, you know, we all had video conferencing. We all had these tools already at hand but I don't think any of us really knew how to use them at the scale that we were forced to do. Uh, going back, you know, to, for us, it was March of, of 2020. And, you know, Lawrence, the, the funny reality here is that I had all often thought about, you know, how great it would be to deploy the technologies at greater scale, give employees more flexibility, but it felt like a really big change management uh, challenge. You know, I figured it probably would take us six months of training and, you know, webinars and uh, demonstration sessions to get people to be able to use Teams or Skype or whatever and collaborate uh, virtually. And our organization, like I think everybody else, did it in a week. And so when you think about what we do to continue to help our employees develop, I think I will always hold on to this example from last year where we saw the immense change capacity that our employees and our organization really have. And so, you know, when we're faced with the next challenge, often we, we might say, well, utilities, they're, they're large, they, you know, they, they can move slowly. We proved that is wrong. We proved we can move very quickly and our employees have an immense, uh, I'd say almost infinite capacity for learning and for change. We demonstrated it then. The challenge now is how do we demonstrate it on the next you know, piece where we want to move the ball. Yeah, and that reminds me, Pedro, as you were speaking about the urgency of change that was brought about by the pandemic, one would imagine that you would have a similar urgency around climate change and you will have people responding because one of the issues around climate change is people always say uh, consumers are not going to change. But I think when that sense of urgency is upon everybody, you will see change. And therefore, I'd want to move outside of the U.S. I know you've, you know, you're, you're talking about Edison International and I know the world stage is something where you've played. Uh, let's, let's just talk about energy access across the globe. Uh, we saw what happened in Puerto Rico. They're working to rebuild Puerto Rico, bring up the system. What role can governments in the developing countries play in the context of increasing energy access? I mean, what are some of the suggestions you would give to them in terms of what needs to happen to attract capital to their sectors, but also to, to make the systems in those countries affordable as well as reliable? What, what are some of the thoughts you would have to share with them? Sure, just as a quick tangent, I grew up in Puerto Rico, so it was painful to see the island go through that. And I was really proud of what EEI members did to support uh, my, my former home. Uh, but, but when you think on, on a global stage, I think I saw an estimate from the World Bank that around 1 billion people today still lack access to electricity. And most of those folks live in rural areas. 
And uh, it's interesting, I'm sure you're acquainted with the United Nations Sustainability Framework that has sustainable development goals. So I think you know one of their goals, SDG 7, uh, is affordable and clean energy. Uh, and so global energy is, agencies estimate that the an annual investment needed by 2030 is something like a trillion dollars. So there is a significant challenge in just bringing the capital to bear, and that'll require you know both private industry stepping up with the capital, but also require governments setting up the regulatory frameworks to attract that capital to provide a sense of stability and security of you know return uh, on and off that capital. And so ultimately, you need public-private partnerships you know, to do that. You know, clicking down another level, you need to think about market design. You need to think about you know, the stable regulatory and frameworks, you know, fair opportunity for return on capital, policy incentives. Uh, you know, here in the United States, you've seen that renewables had a, have advanced significantly um, through both national and state level action, right? The national level, we've had, you know, things like uh, production tax credits, you know, important tools in the tax code. At the state level, we've had, I think something like 30 states, Washington, DC, and three territories all adopt renewable portfolio standards, right? Uh, and we've got seven states and one territory adopt uh, renewable energy goals. Uh, so, you know, it's a combination of actions at federal and state levels, you know, country versus more local or regional levels um, that have helped build the renewable industry. And importantly, that buildup is not just the revenue side, but it's been a maturing on the technology effectiveness and efficiency side. So the cost curve, the drop has been dramatic. I, I remember when I when I was still a young vice president leading Southern California Edison's energy procurement activities. You know, we, we usually keep our costs confidential, the prices we pay in contracts, but this is ancient history. You know, back then we were paying something like 15 cents a kilowatt hour for central station solar projects or wind projects. Today you see plenty of announcements globally where you're seeing global well below uh, global solar uh, well below three cents per kilowatt hour, right? Mm. So, and that's in, in nominal terms. So the real drop has been even more dramatic, right? And that's been because, you know, states like California, uh, countries like uh, Germany and, and others had significant programs with a regulatory framework to help create a market that then led to the market listening, deploying capital for R&D, deploying capital for scaling up production, capturing manufacturing of scale efficiencies, and driving down costs. We're seeing that play out with storage now, right? And so we need to continue uh, to see that across other elements of the clean energy transition globally. Yeah, and, and no, I think, you know, the point you made is a very important regarding, you know, scaling up capital, getting the, the right policies in place. Um, and I want to now talk about your, um, I was going to talk about your leadership philosophy, but I'll come back to that. Let me just first come back to workforce and talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn, so I see all your posting on LinkedIn, and I see what you put there. So, <laughs> good, keep up the good work. But talk about DEI within uh, Edison International. How has it worked, uh, and what what will you say are key to success for others listening who want to deploy DEI in their organization? So, you know, I, I touch a little bit on this first part that I'll share, and then I'll give another uh, element to it. But I touch already on the fact that we have diversity built in from the top, right? So a diverse board, a diverse executive team, a diverse workforce uh, means that this is not just something that's over there that you go think about. So that's one element. 
The second is a core belief that we have around the critical value of transparency. And so that takes a lot of forms, but I'll just give you an example. So something like three years ago, if memory serves me right, uh, we had a question from one of our business resource groups, you know, employee resource group. This came from our, uh, our women's roundtable. And they were asking about um, a simple question, do we pay our women as much as we pay our men? Uh, you see that gender pay gap question asked across, certainly across the US, I think across other countries as well. Um, and at the time, that information was confidential. The reality is in the US, uh, you can get a lot of litigation, right? No good deed goes unpunished. And so traditionally, companies have kept pay uh, uh, diversity information confidential. Uh, we took that as a challenge and decided to open all of that up. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so we share with our employees the fact that uh, we essentially pay women and men the same for doing the same job. When you aggregate across women and aggregate across all men and look at the average for women and the average for men, the reality is that today we still have more men represented in the higher paying jobs. You know, we have uh, around 36% of our executives are female. So that actually matches national availability. Like, uh, uh, so, you know, if we're looking at a market that today produces about a third of executives, uh, you know, being women. We're doing fine by that standard. On, however, we think about this as no, how do we help society move itself to where we see gender parity across the market for executives in the United States? Uh, so it's a representation issue today that leads to then you know, the average pay across all women being a little lower than it is for men. We then took it a next step. And in, a, in our diversity, equity, and inclusion report that we issued in August of 2020, we decided to be incredibly transparent about all sorts of diversity, equity, and inclusion elements. So we didn't just publish our representation, you know, how many men versus women, how many, uh, you know, what percentage from each of our racial or ethnic groups. We published all of that. That's pretty standard for most American companies. But we took it a step further and we provided uh, pay equity data, not only by gender, but also by racial and ethnic groups. Very few companies that we've seen across the S&P 500 in the US do that. We may have been one of the first, if not the first. Um, and there again, we showed that, you know, we pay everybody on average the same for the, for, you know, on a job to job comparison basis, but representation then changes the averages for those groups. But we went further. We also then provided transparent information on employee sentiment, right? Not only what do the numbers say, but how are employees feeling about working for Edison? That gets kind of touchy, right? That data comes from things like pulse surveys. Uh, and so we provided pulse survey data in our disclosure, including data from, uh, went beyond the pulse surveys. We noticed in the surveys that uh, in general, our employees had a pretty good view of Edison, happy to be here, but we got a, a signal that our black and African-American employees were saying, you know, they, will, they were less enthusiastic about their experience. So we dug deeper on that and created focus groups with around 200 of our black and African-American employees. And they provided some kind of troubling themes. Well, what do you do when you have troubling themes? In our view, you make those public and then you make commitments around what you're going to do to improve that. And by being open about that, you know, it helps 
keep you on the hook about delivering on those commitments. Um, and we also provided data, by the way, on our charitable contributions where 80% of our at least $20 million a year that we provide in shareholder funds to our communities for charitable causes, you know, 80% of that at least comes goes to underserved communities. We also provided data on our procurement. And, you know, when you look at our, you know, uh, purchases uh, every year, you know, I think around four or $5 billion a year that we procure in materials and services, around 40% of that is going to diverse suppliers, uh, you know, including small businesses that help build up our economy. So Lawrence, I gave you a long answer there, but it, to me, it's important to, to demonstrate that that transparency goes a long ways because at the end of the day, look, the diversity issues that we have in the United States are not unique to any one company. No. Right? They're really something that's happening societally. We, we saw the change in the societal discussion after the horrible murder of George Floyd last year and, and a number of other uh, you know, black uh, individuals across our country. That, that created a different conversation. You know, frankly, that's fortunately, that conversation was created to a very unfortunate catalyst. Uh, but going beyond conversation to actual actions that help stimulate change across society, you know, we, we can be a part of that. We're a small player. We're a big company. We're a small player in our economy. But if we provide an example of being transparent and other companies do the same, um, that creates a very different conversation where all of a sudden, Collectively, we can have impact that helps all, all groups, all diverse group across the country rise and feel that they have a real shot of being treated equitably and being included in, in our society. I really like the transparency you mentioned, Pedro, and I also like the fact that you've added new metrics or you've, you've brought new data that you've been used uh, to part of this transparency. And, and just a little... Uh, because I want to talk about your personal leadership philosophy before we end here, but just to tie DE&I to ESG, do you do you think at some point some of these metrics you've been using from a DEI perspective could find their ways in, in the ESG uh, discussion? Oh, absolutely. They are part of that. So when I think about ESG, this is a big part of the S part, right, the, around, around social issues. And so like we just published our most recent sustainability report, our, our 2020 sustainability report, and that includes commentary on the things we're doing around the environment, the things we're doing around kind of social and societal issues, including all of our DEI work. Uh, and then it also includes our governance space, where, which we think is really important as well. Um, in addition to the Umbrella Sustainability Report, you know, we publish diversity, equity, and inclusion reports. We publish, in fact, just published or about to publish a community impact report for Southern California Edison. Uh, we will be publishing an SE impact report for our uh, procurement and purchasing activities. But to me, they all tie under the broad umbrella of ESG. And that's, uh, you know, that includes the commitments that we're making in our sustainability report, uh, whether it's environmental targets or DEI targets. Uh, it's important that we be open about those and then, you know, say how we're doing against, our, against them. Well, Pedro, your leadership in the industry in these areas are certainly visible and we see it. Uh, but if you were to sort of characterize your leadership philosophy in three words, what would those words be to characterize what have been this? I mean, you've been successful. You are a VP. You've risen to the ranks within the organization. Now you that you have the help. So how do you characterize your philosophy? Three words, if you may. Or maybe more, but maybe three words. I'm not, I, I'm not the center. I'm not the center. So, 
to give you 10 words around it, uh, I think of the team as a wheel. Yeah. I'm not the hub, I'm the rim. Right? And so my job is to keep the team together. And by the way, when there's mud, the rim goes in first, yeah. right? So that, that's it. Uh, really, you know, we have, we have a, a wonderful team. They're the spokes. You need every one of those spokes to make the wheel. And my job is to create the conditions that help that team succeed. So I think of that as the rim holding it together, not the center of the universe. I like that. I mean, I like that. You're the rim. So as of the day, I'm, start, I'm going to start calling you Pedro the Rim. <laughs> I like that. Very, very good. Pedro the Rim. So uh, from the rim perspective, what's your vision for the company 2050 or 2045? Let's take the path with 45 years as a, as, a, as a date here. So 2045, what's your vision for the company, but also for the industry more broadly? Sure. So 2045 is, you know, all of, call it, you know, 24 years from now. That means that our company at that point will be 159 years old, not 135 years old. That's perspective, right? Because it, we're, yeah. we're, we're in just the next chapter. Yeah. Um, vision, pretty simple. I want us to help lead the clean energy transition and enable it. Um, that means that you know, working with our policymakers, working with our customers to deploy technologies that are critical to helping um, our communities get to net zero carbon and better air quality and you know, create better jobs. Um, so, you know, Lawrence, I, for me, that, that boils down into two broad things. One is the actual work that we do, putting up the wires, having the programs, et cetera. But the other is uh, having a point of view as to where it's all going and helping, helping be catalysts, catalysts for change, where we see that government maybe isn't moving quickly enough, being loud voices and, you know, being a citizen. Uh, being a citizen of our communities and speaking up, not just about our swim lane, but speaking up about how all the swim lanes come together to, to help move the economy into real action. Whenever I think about the future, I think of young people. And, and so uh, my next and my last question is more about the youth. Uh, we have a difficult task as an industry attracting young people, at least for the, for the most part. And you've laid out a very interesting vision. You talk about all the technological, technological changes that are occurring. So how do you get a 15-year-old to find this industry attractive? How do you get them to really come to this industry where there's a lot going on, but the perception is it's not innovative, it's not cool. So how do you, how do you get this, innovate, this, in, this industry to be more attractive for young people? Yeah. Two things come right away to mind. One is the industry is a lot cooler than, uh, than it was even five years ago. And, and we see it in the people we're recruiting, Lawrence. They are attracted by the clean energy mission and the transformative power we're gonna have in our societies. You know, that the core role of the grid to help decarbonize the economy, that's meaningful. I mean, and we have a real sense of mission at our company. And I know that's the same across so many of our peers across EEI. So frankly, that part's pretty darn easy these days. Um, you're getting folks who wanna change the world. Um, I do think to your other point though, that we need to do more to make sure those potential future colleagues understand um, how quickly technology is moving our industry and what a big part we play in that. And so, you know, earlier you mentioned uh, like the, the data scientists, right? So the fact that over the last several years, we've, uh, we've paired up these new to the industry, usually fairly young data scientists with very seasoned um, uh, power operators, right? And we put them together in something we call the Reliability Operations Center, where we're analyzing 
data from smart meters and data from telemetry from our SCADA systems and all sorts of other data feeds and using machine learning and artificial intelligence to turn that data around and give us insights that we could never have had just four or five years ago, right? That's a, just a powerful story. It's really attractive to um, folks who are interested in advancing technology, right? It's just one example. But you know, I think as an industry, we need to do a better job of communicating the cool stuff that we're doing, the important stuff that we're doing, that's really moving the ball, not only for our, for our customers, for our communities, but it's moving the ball for society and for the globe in terms of using a clean electric grid to decarbonize our economies and give us a, frankly, climate that will help humanity survive uh, generations to come. So in that, in that, in that vein, uh, before we wrap up, what, what concerns you the most about 2045 and what excites you the most about 2045? So getting there concerns me the most because it is a heavy lift, Lawrence. And upfront is an expensive lift, right? We need to make the commitments for massive capital deployment to get there. What excites me the most is that we will get there. We will have a cleaner planet and we will have a more affordable life for our customers, right? Again, as we talked about earlier, that the power of electrification and the efficiency of it uh, will reap multiple benefits. You know, uh, not only a, a decarbonized uh, economy, but cleaner air, uh, you know, interesting jobs and a resilient grid that can help power the rest of the economy. That's really exciting. And frankly, that's why we all show up at our jobs and, you know, keep on at it. And we may have to bang our heads on the wall now and then, you know, some of it may be hard to do, but it's really worth doing. I like, I like what you said, the power of electrification. So you're very busy and you've given me an hour of your time, which I really appreciate. My audience does as well. Uh, but everyone has to have a downtime. They have to have time to sort of rejuvenate and to rebuild their energy, to do what you're doing. Very, very busy in a very, 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 very interesting state. So what do you do for leisure? And I see that your bookshelf, like mine, is very full with books. What was your most recently read book? And um, what's one you're thinking about reading, but you haven't had the time to read? Okay, so a lot in there uh, for, for fun. I, like, it's all about my family. And so I've been married, but we just celebrated 32 years. My wife and I met in college. We went to grad school together. Uh, so it's, uh, she's an earthquake scientist, which is very uh, relevant in California. Yes, and we have a 23-year-old and a 17-year-old. So it's, uh, life is good. And it's downtime with them. Uh, it's running and cycling for me uh, in terms of clearing my head. Um, and, uh, and I like cooking. I have a, uh, a pizza oven, so I make my dough. I make my sauces. You know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to do it like the Neapolitans did a long time ago. Um, I'll be honest with you, very little reading time. It's one of the things I keep trying to do more of, but I read so much for work. Uh, that after mid half the time, I just gonna disconnect and go talk with my wife, or you know, go on a bike ride with her, or whatever. But uh, a couple of books come to mind. One that's not the most recent, but one that I read actually it's been a couple of years ago that really stuck out. Uh, a, a fellow coworker at Edison recommended it. And it's called Grit, and it's about uh, somebody did a, a research on highly successful people and found that uh, the key element wasn't so much intellect, it was this intangible quality called grit. Uh, it allows people to power through the tough stuff. So really fascinating. She's actually a former McKinsey person. She uh, did research on folks at, I think at West Point, at some top end colleges, at some uh, disadvantaged high schools that produce really uh, you know good students. 
just a, a great touch point. So that was great. Um, book I'm in the middle of reading now, um, actually hoping I can read a little bit more in the next couple of days. I'm going to take a little time off. Um, it's called An Unquiet Mind. Mm. And it is about a, uh, a woman who's a, a senior researcher at UCLA who has uh, uh, mental health issues. She's bipolar. Uh, and she tells her life story, but also talks about how folks with bipolar syndrome can have highly effective lives with the right combination of uh, therapeutics and counseling. Um, and there's a, one of my loved ones who is uh, working through bipolar and I think will be very successful um, but the book got recommended as an example of somebody who's had a brilliant career um, in that field, actually. And uh, just a great reminder of the importance of mental health, not only for each of us as individuals, but for our, for our communities, for our organizations. So as we come through the pandemic, we've uh, really doubled down on making mental health resources available to our employees because we're all human. We're all frail. None of us is superhero. And we all need help at some point in, in our lives. Well, Pedro, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, when you set these interviews up, you have no idea where you're going to end. But I think what you just said was a perfect place to cement this conversation. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Pedro Bizarro, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Edison International. Thank you again, Pedro. Thanks, Lawrence. Great spending time with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.